As you're opened up to Ephesians chapter 1, to create a frame from our considerations last week is it is God's desire to have a people that will be all his, a people that will be fully his. As a matter of fact, this is what he's promised his son or the son of man. When you look back in Genesis 2, you find that it is not good for man to be alone. And this is the father's evaluation of the man that was in the garden. Adam, or the first Adam, as Paul would reference him in Romans, when contrasted with the last Adam, who is the man Jesus. But this first Adam, the initial evaluation, after God making these humans, these creatures, a people that he desired to do life with, to share himself with in an intimate way. This fellowship that man had been created for and invited into. The evaluation of Adam while living life and being responsible to God. The evaluation is it's not good for man to be alone. But it's the father's desire evaluating the life of this man to bring him to the place where he says, I will make for you a suitable helper. I will ready for you a comparable companion. And this statement launches throughout time as we know it and the human experience a divine desire that is affecting every single one of our lives, whether we knew it or not. And that is God desires a people for himself. And this people that he desires to be his, to have to himself, is the companion that he's promised to the man Jesus. Because the evaluation of the life of Adam is an initial evaluation that reveals an eternal implication. And the eternal implication is the Son of Man is not going to rule alone. The Son of Man is not going to stand by himself. There will be a companion alongside of him. There will be a bride that is readied for him. There will be a people that I will prepare across the timeline of history from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. I will redeem them from the corruption of the system of the age. I will free them from the enslavement of the influence of rulers in powers. I will purchase them with my own blood and they will be my possession and I will conform them to the image of this man Jesus so that alongside of the Son of Man in the age to come, I can be glorified by saints, creatures, elders marveling at this people that I have made ready to be his companion. Amazing in every possible way. And we together are a part of that people. This divine desire that the Father has to present his son with the bride that he deserves. Um, I've been getting my life ruined in participating in weddings over the last couple of years. I mean, they're, they're always an, an extraordinary experience. But over the last couple of years, it has been especially special. When whoever's officiating says, all rise. 
and the doors crack open and the father stands with the bride looking down the aisle towards the son or the bridegroom. And the walk ensues where the father is coming to bring the bride to the bridegroom. And they say, who gives this woman to this man? And the father says, I do. Can you see it? This divine desire, you deserve a bride, and I'm going to get her ready for you. And though sin and the influence of powers have seemed to corrupt the desire, I have power to produce the things that I've said I wanted. My agenda will be accomplished. And in the end, because God is superintending over the timeline of history, in the end, time is working for him and his own life and grace and power will produce for him the things that he has said he wants. And our lives together as a company are being affected by this divine desire. We are a part of the bride of Christ. We are a family of new creatures that have been redeemed from the influence of rulers and powers. We are a blood-bought people, which means we've been purchased. There's new ownership. And since there's new ownership, it means there's new influence. And together, as a people, it is our desire to come under the influence of God's leadership. That is our desire, to come under the influence of God's leadership. And this is actually way more extraordinary than just how simple it sounds. And last week we considered God wants a people for himself. It matters to him how they set their life up. Because of his desire to actually walk in the midst or to abide or to find a resting place or to dwell among to have a habitat that is most conducive to him abiding in the midst of the people that he says are his. It matters, which is why we looked at the initial experience in Genesis. And when they violated the terms of the covenant, when they transgressed the boundaries of God's abiding desires, he exiled them. And then we took a look at Exodus where God comes on the mount, and once again, he says, I really want to be with you, and I really want to dwell among you, but it's going to matter to me that you actually come under my leadership, and that is going to be revealed or demonstrated by you learning to live the principles of how you should set your life up for me to walk among you the way that I want to. There must come a point in our journeying with God where our preferences become subject to God's principles. And you see this time and time again with the children of Israel. He gave them a particular mandate or there were desires. It was the wedding covenant of sorts. This is how I'm asking you to live, not just for religiosity, not just for some rigid to-do list, not just because of duty and obligation. No, no, no. This is because I have a desire. It's not just because of duty and obligatory things. I have a desire that's infusing all of these principles. And if you would learn to live by the principles, I would find rest in the midst of you the way that I desire to. 
And yet we find that there was the constant intermingling with the nations. There was the constant transgressing the boundaries by appetites that hadn't come under God's influence and that hadn't yet been conditioned to live consistently by God's principles. As it was with the children of Israel, um, we would, now hear this in context of what I'm saying, we would require less miracles if we learned to live by more principles. Um, The children of Israel demanded miracles because they refused to live by principles. The writer of Hebrews says, I was angry with a generation because they fixated themselves on my works. They were always demanding something from me. They held their devotion and their obedience hostage with a ransom of some sort of experience. Right? We have no meat. Take us back to Egypt. It says that they rallied to stone Aaron and Moses and that they were already taking resumes for a new leader for themselves because they wanted to go back to get the leeks and onions from Egypt. Right? What a sad testimony of the human experience. The the pain of coming under God's influence and learning to live by principles. They were willing to forfeit their freedom because of certain demands that they had before God himself with a consideration to go back to the experience of bondage. But we would require less miracles if we learn to live by principles. This was the testimony of the wilderness for them. And the writer of Hebrews says God was angry with an entire generation because they didn't have a desire to know him and to learn his ways. They were over fixated with the things that God could do, right? They had to learn that God was more than a bill payer and a food multiplier. They had to learn that he was more than a healer or a deliverer, as amazing as those things are that God wanted to be known in the way of his ways, which is what Moses prays. Show me your ways that I might know you. Familiarize me with you by familiarizing me with your ways that I might actually come to know you in a deeper and more real intimate way. Yes, I get it. I have access to the things that you do and as amazing as it is for all that you do, I can know everything you do and still not necessarily know you. And they fixated themselves on an experience, on an encounter. And when you read the the, the account, it's actually painful to see at every turn where God was not working in the way that they were demanding for him to be working, they immediately lost their desire to walk with him, to fellowship with him, to know him. Right now, this is no different than the human experience if we're not careful in our moment. Right? But God is not trying to come underneath our influence. It's actually the exact opposite. He's desiring for people to come under his influence. He says, I want a people that are mine. The way that that's going to be revealed or how that's going to get demonstrated is these people that are mine. 
I'm going to call them out. I'm going to make them separate. They are going to be in it, but they won't be of it. And the way that that will be displayed is through their way of life. Because I'm going to reveal to them desires that I have for them in how they're going to do life with me. And when they do life with me, my way, it is going to create a contrast with the nations of the world and an intersection of difference when people see a different way of living. Our appetites are not the same as the appetites that are found in the rebellion in the world. As a matter of fact, God takes those that consider themselves a rebel and turns them into a royal. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, once you were not a people, you were just like the rest of the world. You were under the influence of rulers and powers. You were broken. You were insecure. You were hostile. God chose to break into your circumstance and to redeem you and to bring you out and to bring you under his leadership. And now you are a people and not just any people. Now you're the people of God. You're a people that have been called out. You're a royal priesthood. God takes rebels and turns them into a royal priesthood. He takes those that are hostile. He takes those that are against the idea of God's love and leadership bringing definition to a people and makes them to be a part of the inheritance that he has promised his son. Because this is what Jesus has been promised. He's been promised a people. And we are that people. And God is desiring to bring us together as a people under his influence in every single aspect of our lives, in every public and visible thing, in every hidden or private or secret thing. A yielding to the weight of God's influence is what God is longing to have in a company of people. And it matters to him. In Ephesians chapter 1, let's jump down and let's, let's read 15 to 23. Paul says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Hear this, so that you will know the hope of his calling, so that you will know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance that is in the saints. And so that you will come to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head 
over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is praying for believers who have received the Spirit as a down payment, as a deposit, as a pledge. He says that in previous verses. He says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. God is coming to possess the things that he has purchased. He has given his spirit as a pledge to that promise and his power revealed in raising Jesus from the dead. The extraordinary work and witness of God's sovereignty and his exaltation and the humiliation of powers and rulers and principalities. The man Jesus, God himself in a human vehicle, being raised from the dead, exalted above the powers, making a mockery of their attempt to derail this divine desire for God to give to his son the people that he promised him. God has released power through the life of his spirit into the hearts and lives of those that have come to believe in order to give them a witness of the things that God has promised. And here, Paul considers he's coming back to get the things that he said he wants. And it's a people. It's a people that he's promised his son that have come under his leadership that are yielding to his influence and being conformed to the image of Jesus. And it matters to him because the details of how they live their lives are revealing their desire or lack of desire for God to give the son what it is that he promised him as his inheritance. And I would suggest that there is a practical part for you to play in Jesus getting what it is that his father has promised him. That it is not just a free-for-all, and that it, right, last week we considered freedom is not a free-for-all. God tells them at the Exodus account in chapter 19, I didn't just do this for you. I get it. Enjoy your freedom. I redeemed you from hostility. I brought you out from Egyptian slavery and the mistreatment of Pharaoh's leadership. I get all of that. This is symbolic. It's a type. It's a picture. It's, it's supposed to communicate to us the domain of darkness and the tyranny of wickedness and its influence, the oppression upon people that God says, I want for myself. I set you free from all of that, but not just for you. There's something that I want. Not just so that now you could do your own thing and live your own life and enjoy your freedom, which in normal cases means a detaching from alignment with God. No, I'm not asking you to enjoy freedom that way. 
I'm asking you to come to know freedom and maximum pleasure by coming under my leadership and yielding your life to the boundaries of this covenant where my desires are not rigid or religious to you, but where you see them as the parameters of maximum joy, where you see them as the boundary markers of all that is to be known in pleasure in this life when living life the way that I prescribe, where you wouldn't have to, so to speak, hop the fence and go play in the neighbor's yard to find some enjoyment where you would know me and where you wouldn't continue to derail your alignment with me because of appetites that haven't come under my leadership and cravings that aren't being conditioned by my influence. And it matters. Because just as it mattered to him all throughout Exodus, all throughout Leviticus, as we read several instances, you find that the desire does not change. When you come through Exodus, you find, I want to be there with you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go to extraordinary lengths to give you details how to set your life up and then to put a tabernacle or a tent in the midst of you that is going to give you a physical reference point to me journeying with you, to me abiding with you. There's going to be the tent of meeting, and at times there's going to be glory. There'll be a cloud. There'll be fire. There'll be a witness that I will give you, that I am among you. There'll be a demonstration that I'll provide to you to reveal to you that when you're synchronized with me by setting your life up the way that I reveal to you, I will be among you, which is what I'm after. It's not just nonsensical. I want to be with you is God's desire. But then you find that he begins to test them. And when you come to Numbers chapter 9, uh, you may be familiar with the chapter. Uh, the first part of the chapter is about the Passover. And it's the celebration of the Passover. It's going to be an annual thing, and it's established throughout their future. right? It's an ordinance of sorts that they are to keep as a reminder of God's deliverance and salvation. right? But then when you get past those verses of the Passover, I, I believe it's 15 to 23 of Numbers chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. You find that God begins to test them. Well, well you might think to yourself, well, I mean, that doesn't sound like um, the type of God that I would want to walk with. Well, I mean, we got to get to know him. <laughs> he begins to test them to see if they are serious about following him, to see if they are serious about coming under his influence. And the way that he tests them, Numbers chapter 9 reveals the details. It says that there was a cloud upon the tent of meeting by day, and there was fire by night. And that as they were journeying with God, whenever the cloud would go up, that they were to take up camp and to begin to follow the cloud. Whenever the fire if God would begin to move in the middle of the night, that they were to keep watch and be sensitive to God's movings. And that when the fire went up, 
in the middle of the night that they were to take up camp and to begin journeying under the leadership or sensitive to God's directions or directives of sorts to know what is God doing and where is he going, which implies I'm not just here to camp out or hang out to do my own thing, but I'm trying to do the God thing, which means I've got to be sensitive to God's presence because when the presence begins to move, I need to be ready to move. And it says that it didn't matter if the cloud after they set up camp would go up after two days, after a month, or if the cloud would tarry for a year, that God was testing them in their supposed desire to follow him. And that he was testing them by how willing they were or how sensitive they were to yield to his leadership. Last week, we considered that God desires the details. Right? And I said, anybody who tries to convince themselves that God is not interested in the practical details of our day-to-day and how our life is set up has never read the book of Leviticus. Never. But you find that he doesn't stop because now we come through not just setting things up a particular way, systematic of sorts, but now systematic, yes, but now sensitivity. Are you sensitive to my desires? And are you willing to bend when I bend and move when I move? And Numbers chapter 9 reveals his desire to have a people that as a way of life are willing to move with him. We want to be a people of the Spirit. And part of being a people of the Spirit is yielding to God's influence. It's not just all of what might be the dynamic or charismatic externals, although we want that. And we want them to be rich. We want them to be abundant. We want real power. We want to demonstrate that. We want to flow and go with the best of them. But in another way, the consideration must be that God has put his own spirit in us so that while God is in us, we can yield to God. God working in us is actually working on behalf of a desire that God has. And the desire that God has is that we would yield to him, that we would surrender to him, that we would bend under the weight of his influence and be willing to be moved by him in any particular way that he may be moving when he's moving. And so we want to be a people filled with the Spirit, sensitive to the agenda of God that bears witness in us as a people of the Spirit. And that means we yield to him in real time. That when God begins to move and we recognize a particular agenda that God has, we yield, we bend, we flow, we move. And our demonstrating coming under his influence often is displayed by our partnership of going with God when we sense him moving. And this is what he was looking for in Numbers. Are you willing to be sensitive to my leadership and to follow me and to follow me my way, to follow me on my terms and on my timeline? Well, this just shows that there is a practical part that we have to play in what it is that God wants. And that's why we read these verses out of Ephesians chapter 1. 
is because Paul's consideration is a few items that are of utmost importance for us. He says, God has done his part, and he's given you his spirit. He's done his part. He's entered into the human story in a human vehicle. He has laid down his life with joy while being mocked, criticized, insulted by people and powers, humiliated as they nailed him to a tree and he bled out on desires that he has. God has done his part. The man Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has been exalted to the highest place. He is now seated, enthroned, above every name that is to be named, every rule, every authority, every power that is known. He is alive from the dead and enthroned on high. God has done his part. He's released his spirit into the human experience in order to enter in to the hearts and lives of those that come to believe so that there can be a witness or a recognition of God's divine desire in the human heart and life that would cause them, because of the power that is working in them, to know God intimately and then to yield to his influence in an ongoing way. And part of this yielding to God's influence is the consideration that Jesus is alive from the dead and exalted to the highest place. He is alive from the dead and exalted to the highest place. And it's important that we acknowledge this, not just in Ephesians 1, but in the way that we consider our own lives and to live them faithfully yielding to God's influence. Ephesians chapter 1, God has done his part. He has humiliated the powers, even though they tried to mock him and crucify him. He is exalted to the highest place, enthroned and awaiting the moment of his return to come and possess everything that he has said he wants and purchased with his own blood. And now those that come to believe receive this spirit, this life, this power, the Holy Ghost as a down payment and as a pledge. And this spirit working in the lives of those that come to believe is now the most treasured resource the whole world has ever known. And it is revealing to us God's desires so that we can actually know the hope of his calling. We can know what this thing is all about because we have the spirit. The richness of the inheritance that is now made available to the saints. If we understood the depth the breadth of the power of God's own life and spirit that resides on the inside. We would put a deeper anchor down in dependency in the Holy Ghost. It's the most extraordinary resource. There is no greater thing that God could give you than his own life. There is no more powerful resource or tool that the world has to offer than what God has done to share himself in the most intimate way by putting himself through his own spirit into the human experience. Those that come to believe, I will share myself with you. 
And I just won't give you stuff and things. I will give you myself. And the deposit of the Spirit is going to let you know what is the hope of your calling. You're not in the dark as to what the purpose of the age is. You shouldn't be living your life clueless as to what is God doing and why does it matter? What's the story that I've been brought into? The spirit is bearing witness to the desires that God has. The richness of the inheritance, all of the power, all of the life, all of the glory that is now available to those that have come to believe, which here Paul calls the saints. The richness of the inheritance, listen to that, richness of the inheritance that is available to the saints. Would you consider your relationship with the Holy Spirit rich? I would hope so, because it's what's been promised to us. Would you consider your relationship with the Holy Spirit dynamic and powerful and real and life-giving? Right? If not, then there is a well, a reservoir of life and power and glory and grace that we are leaving untapped. That we are leaving untapped if we are not tapping into the richness of the inheritance that is in the saints. We should be a people of the Spirit and tapping this well of life in an ongoing way every day with an anchor of dependency that if God is not cultivating in me the things that God desires, then at worst or at best, depending on how we define our terms, we are um, relegating all of our imagery of the Christian life to things that we can form or flesh out by our own power. Oh, I know how to do this Christian thing. So I'll just create my own standards, my own systems. It'll be separate from dependency because my real desire is to live independent of yielding to God's influence. And I'll just create a form of sorts that will give me an image of religiosity. Well, this is one of the conditions of the end of the age. Paul says men will have a form of godliness, yet denying its power. The power in a people to bring them under God's leadership, to make them subject influence and the power which is the resource in the human experience to transform them and conform them to the image of Jesus. Men will forfeit the power and the agenda of the power and will create for themselves images of religiosity. They will have an image of religiosity. They will have a filter of sorts, all the while denying the rich, dynamic power that is alive on the inside of those of us that have come to believe and given ourselves to God. And he says, and then to go and to know the surpassing greatness of his power. The surpassing greatness of his power towards those that believe which was revealed or put on display when he raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him above the powers. Well, this is an important framework for Ephesians chapter 1 because when you turn the page or when you swipe, if you're looking at it on a device, when you get to Ephesians 2, Paul begins with, and you too were dead. But God has done the work 
to raise you from the dead and to now, as a company of people, redeem you from the influence of powers and rulers. And while you were sin-satisfied, living in your transgression and delighting in the pursuit of yourself, God has set you free. He set you free from a life of self-indulgence so that you could come under his leadership and live your life now bending or yielding to his influence. And God did this. Those two words in Ephesians 2, 4, but God, that have changed each one of our stories and destinies, that have radically altered our family lines and created for us a lineage or a heritage of God's goodness. We've been translated out of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his son that he loves. We are now together a people alive from the dead. The grave of self-indulgence. The grave of a sin-satisfied way of living. The grave of having no one to pursue but ourselves and to live in a preoccupied way with our own demands and desires. God has raised us from the dead. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, that used to be everybody. But now you are the people of God. And God has made you alive to himself and he's brought you into fellowship with his son. And he's fueling it all with the power of his spirit. Ephesians 1, we have the man Jesus alive from the dead who deserves the people and the release of the spirit across the nations of the world to enter into the human experience in order to create a possession that God is coming back for. Well, Ephesians chapter 2, now we together are that redeemed people alive from the dead who now bear the power of God's own life by his spirit in order to bring us under his leadership and influence so that his agenda of conforming us to the image of his son can actually be accomplished in each one of our lives. Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 10 Paul would say, and now the church bears the responsibility to display the manifold wisdom of God and to bring instruction to powers. The church bears the responsibility of demonstrating our Ephesians 1 allegiance. We are now pledging our allegiance to the man Jesus, alive from the dead, ascended on high, enthroned in the heavens, the ruler of all creation. This is our pledging of allegiance. Ephesians 1. Paul says in Ephesians 3, the church must demonstrate these realities, that we've pledged our allegiance, not to the system of the age and the appetites of this material life, but to Jesus the man Jesus, the bridegroom, the son of man, enthroned on high. And that together now, we are a people who are alive from the dead. Paul says in Ephesians 3, live this way and demonstrate it to the world around you. Display God's power in your own life and now together as a family of new creatures. Bring a display or a demonstration of what God desires to the hostility and the rebellion in the nations. 
which is why we are planted throughout the world to bring a witness. It's why we didn't just simply enter into the age to come the moment we got born again. We've been planted in order to pursue a way of life under God's leadership that will create a witness to the nations, that will bring a witness to our city, that God would have a people for himself in our city that would bring a witness of his divine desire and a display of the power that he has released on people in order to reveal the things that he wants. And in Ephesians 3, Paul says, now the church is supposed to live that. And they're supposed to bring instruction to powers. They're bringing instruction to powers that what God has purchased, the things that he has promised for his son, that he is going to give him. When powers look at our life and life together, they should be reminded that God has purchased a people out from under their tyranny and influence. This is the reality of Ephesians 3. The reality of Ephesians 3 is that when powers evaluate your life, they should be reminded that there is no vacancy for their influence, that there is no room at the inn, that there is no space that is open in order to be manipulated or to be compromised, in order to be derailed from allegiance to Jesus and alignment with his desires. There's no way that you could bring me to do something that would compromise me being radically aligned to God. This is the instruction that powers receive whenever they see the life of these new creatures living under the influence of God's love and leadership. They should be reminded that we've been defeated. They should be reminded that there's a day dawning ahead of them where their eternal consideration God will make real and put a stamp on it to evict them from being able to influence creation or humans at all. Which is why Paul starts in Ephesians 4 in verse 1 with, Now live worthy of that call. Walk in a manner that's worthy of that consideration. Walk in a manner that's worthy of that consideration. That my life has been rescued from the influence of powers. And every time my life is observed or evaluated, it should be a reminder to powers that they have no place to influence me in the things that I have an appetite for or in the way that my life is set up. And to think that this is not a big deal, it is. And in fact, it's one of the things that we find Jesus praying for as a man while he was on the earth. In John 17, Jesus prays. And really the whole chapter is extraordinary because it's a reminder to us that God is talking to God about us. The whole chapter. God is talking to God about us and the desire for us to be with him in a way that is going to eclipse our experience of time. It will be forever. Because God just doesn't want to do life in an immediate way. God is actually conditioning us in an immediate way to do life with him forever. And if we don't connect these dots, then we miss out on a majority of what the emphasis is all about. 
God is conditioning you to be with him forever. He's conditioning you to enter into the age to come and to walk with him in a way where time will no longer determine the time we have with him. And our lives yielded to his influence now is what's actually conforming us and conditioning us to be ready to experience him forever. And it's amazing. Or at least I think so. And in John 17, we get a glimpse of how important this is to Jesus. In verse 22 of John 17, Jesus says, The glory which you've given me, I've given to them. This family of new creatures, this blood-bought, redeemed, purchased people from the hostility of the nations and the corruption of the influence of powers. Hear that in a fresh way for us. The glory that you've given to me, I've given it to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. Again, that our reference point for unity in God and then together as a people that become one is not just fleshly, preferentially, something that's worldly, that we could quite possibly manufacture based off of our own terms. It's not because we like the same things. It's not because our families are the same size. It's not because we've pledged allegiance or we associate with similar things. It's because we are a Jesus people. And this triune or this fellowship of the Trinity is what we've been invited into. We've been invited in to fellowship with God as Father, Son, and Spirit in the same way that they have enjoyed fellowship or interaction forever and ever and ever. And we've been purchased so that we can participate in this fellowship. And now, out of the consideration of this fellowship as our reference point for unity, Jesus says, I've given them the glory that you've given to me so that they can be one just like we're one. Amazing. And actually not possible for you to do by your own fleshly preferences. Meaning to only associate with the people that you like, to only hang out with certain folks that you feel are beneficial, to only try to leverage or to manipulatively consider relationships towards what's going to produce the best outcome or object for you, to connect the dots based off of your desires or demands or dreams that you have in life to figure out who's actually going to be the stepping stone to get me where I want to go because I've determined that these things are more ultimate to me than the things that Jesus is praying for ultimately but he says I'm praying for a people that are going to be one in the way that we are one I will be in them and you are in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved me even as you or loved them even as you have loved me the father loves us the way he loves Jesus Father, I desire that they also, the they is the company. It's the people 
from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. It's the redeemed family being made ready to be his comparable companion. It is the bride. It is the church that Jesus says belongs to him. And I will build my church. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that they would be with me where I am. Here's the desire that rocks the timeline of history. The people that you've promised me, I have to have them. The people that you've said I deserve, I want them, and I'm willing to do anything to get them. The bride that will be my comparable companion, my suitable helper, that you are making ready for me, I want them to be with me where I am. And he laid his life down and endured the horrific events of the cross with joy because of the joy set before him to have this people, to have this family, that this redeemed creation conformed to his image could be with him where he is. He says, Father, I have to have them. This is extraordinary. Jesus is praying for what he's been promised. I have to have them. I'll do anything to get them. I understand what all of this is about. I'm not confused as to why I'm laying my life down. I know what all the details are leading towards. I know exactly what the joy set before me is. I'm not left out in the dark. These aren't just random events. Everything in process is working towards what I've been promised. I have to have them because I want them to be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you've given me, for you've loved me before the foundation of the world. Listen to what Jesus is praying for. He wants the people that he's been promised. The people conformed to his image, living with an otherworldly sense of unity or oneness. A family that could only be what it is that they are because of God's own life and power that has transformed them to make them what God desires. Jesus is praying for them. He says, give them to me. This is what this is all about. Give them to me. I have to have them. Well, I would suggest to you that there is a practical way that you can make an investment into the inheritance that Jesus has been promised. And I would suggest that by our together coming under God's influence and leadership, that it is our way of life together that is one of the things, the mechanisms, the vehicles that God is intensely using in order to conform our lives individually and together as a people to the image of his son that he loves. That it is our way of life together that is one of the things God is using to conform us to the image of Jesus. And that you can practically make an investment into Jesus getting what it is that he's been promised. And until we understand which is why we've referenced certain things like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
until we understand that God is in the details and that it is a way of life that God uses in order to make or to manufacture the people that he desires. Until we see clearly for ourselves that the life is directly connected to what God wants, we will continue to devalue, to discredit, and to mistreat God's desires for a people to commit to an ongoing way of life together. In the Old Testament, it would have been all of the law revealed in Exodus and Leviticus through numbers, God's desires for people to live a particular way to set their life up a particular way that would create a contrast from all the other people groups throughout the world. That God was looking for people that would be different by giving themselves to a way of life that was different. So until we see that there's a direct connection with what God wants and now how we actually live life, We'll never connect that God is in how we set our life up and that how we set our life up and our way together is actually one of the practical ways that God is working out the things that he has already said he wants. Which means when I connect the dots to the life or the blueprint the strategy, God's prescription to a people for how they should live life together. Until I connect those dots, I will not see that my way of life actually ministers to God because it invests in the inheritance that he promised Jesus. But when I see it, when I see it, I'll never be able to unsee it. Because until you see, you don't see. Which is why Paul in Ephesians 1 prayed for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to come upon them in the knowledge of him. So that there would be an illumination of sorts. To turn the lights on in a dark room so you could look around and finally be like, man, this is amazing. And I never even knew all of this. That's what he's praying for. So that you could see. Because until... You see, you don't see. But when you see, you can't unsee. And the reality of this does not change. Meaning, God's desires to have a people that are committed to a way of life is going to be the most conducive environment, habitat, wineskin for God to get the things that he said he wants. And that's why, for me, it is such a joy to do what we do. And it is an absolute privilege to be knit together in the way that we are knit together, because not just because I am absolutely convinced. That's just not why it's exciting. Um, I believe that the Bible should convince us of these things. That, that it's not man's opinion or agenda but that God is absolutely interested in a way of life that is going to give him the wineskin for him to make ready what it is that he promised his son. And that is the direct connecting that our way of life influences our being conformed to his image. Which is why you can have two people side by side that have been in God, 
for different time periods and based off of an evaluation have different measure of conformed than one another. Right? Not everyone who's been in church is conformed to the image of Jesus. Right? And, and time alone is not a good enough determiner to guarantee a certain measure of being conformed. Because you might think for yourself, well, I've been in church for 30 years. But to God, in how transformed you are or conformed you are, you can be in second grade. Because you've never yielded to his influence. You've never been bent under the weight of his leadership. You live your life by your own preferences that have never come subject to his principles. You've never learned his ways. You live a life that demands that he's always working for you in order for you to be faithful to him. You hold your, do your, your devotion hostage with a ransom, always demanding something from the Lord in order for you to be faithful to him, in order for you to have a certain measure of devotion. Right? No, no, no. It's why you can have people that have been in church supposedly for decades that aren't necessarily as transformed as we would consider them to be. But until we make the connection that our way of life is bringing a direct influence to the things that God wants, we'll never actually see why it's so important. And this is what Jesus is praying for. The people conform to his image. Well, on a basic evaluation, your way of life is conforming you to an image. Your way of life is conforming you to an image. The goal is that we would yield and come under his influence so that together we might actually look more like Jesus as we're journeying and not simply just like these other pursuits or dreams or ambitions that we have, where we would, like Samuel referenced, begin to image certain things that we have appetites for, but where our consideration would be the image of Jesus in each one of our lives and wanting to yield to God to set our life up in the best possible way for him to transform me and conform me to of his son, where our evaluations wouldn't just be how do I set my life up to go after or to get the things that I want with all of the variety of interests that we may carry, but where maybe even for the first time ever we ask ourselves, is my life set up in the best way for God to get what he wants? It doesn't matter, I don't need the response. <laughs> I've perfected the art of preaching without it. But is my life set up in the best way for God to get what he wants? Is my way of life the best container, the best wineskin for God to fulfill his agenda in me and through me and with the people that he's covenantally planted me with? Is my way of life re representing or reflecting that I've come under his leadership and by coming under his leadership, my life is set up in the way for God to get the things that he has already said he wants? Or 
is my life set up in a way that just reveals competition in my interests? And so my level of commitment or anchoring in the things that I know God wants is always being rivaled by the things that I want. And so I'm setting my life up to feel like it's more beneficial for me to do these things rather than putting an anchor down in the things that God says. Because if we could say it this way, um, and I'll just make a couple of more comments, and then we'll close. Uh, a couple of more comments, maybe another 45 minutes or so. Um, we would all agree the way that our life is set up currently reveals the things that at this point in our journey we are most interested in. We've determined are most beneficial to me. We have, through an evaluation, come to the conclusion that it is most consequential on my journey that I set my life up this way. Because through setting my life up this way, it is going to leverage my effort against the things that I said I want. That is true of all of us, because we all have the time to do the things we all want to do. None of us are too busy to do the things we want to do. None of us. None of us are too busy to do the things we want to do. If I tell you I'm busy, it's because I've already determined that what I'm doing is more important than what you're asking me to do. It doesn't mean that you have to consider what I'm doing to be important because we may be operating with different value systems, which is why your value system may not be able to appreciate the things that I've determined are already important to me. Now, I'm not saying that in a direct way as if it's like between you and me. What I'm saying is in a general way, with the overall consideration, none of us are as busy as we actually think we are. We have preoccupied our lives with the things that right now are most important to us. And when I tell you that I have no room, what I actually mean is I don't have room to do the thing that you are inviting me to do because I've already determined that what I'm doing is more important than what you're inviting me to do. And so all of our lives right now are being lived in the way that we believe is most beneficial towards the things that we want. But are they the most beneficial towards the things that God wants? And there has to come a point in our journey, and we'll consider this in greater depth next week. There has to come a point in our journey where the evaluation of our own lives and the things that we said are beneficial, if they are actually connecting the dots with the desires that God has, and the things that he deems to be the most beneficial for us. Because until I see that there is a way of life that is going to best give him what he wants, I will continue to devalue the components of life together because I will always determine that there are more important things for me to do. Now, what do I mean by that? In the most simplistic terms, when I have the opportunity to work overtime, or to share a meal with someone who's a part of the family of God. 
I'll determine that it is more beneficial for me to have access to the finances because I will determine that that's more consequential on my journey, that there's more for me to be had if I had access to the money rather than if I were to give myself to a way of life with the components that God has determined are going to be most beneficial to him being able to give his son the things that he promised his son. It's why I'll work extra instead of sharing meals. It's why I won't come to the prayer meeting. It's why I won't actually open my life up and do life or journey with anyone. I'll come to meetings, but I won't do life with anyone because I've already determined that these things are not important enough to me in the way that I want to journey because of the things that I've determined are important to me. And so if I get the things that I want, it doesn't necessarily matter to me if God gets the things that he wants because I've concluded that what I want, God must want. Because he wants me to be happy, right? And that's all that he's most interested in. No. What he's most interested in is giving his son what he promised him. And it's a people conformed to his image. Right? And we can journey in God 10 years, 15 years, 5 years. Doing things our own way. Setting up our life in the way that we've determined is most beneficial. And come to unique sticking points. Where we evaluate our own life before the Lord. I'm not talking about in some legalistic way. Is God getting out of me what he wants? And we can then determine at different times, I don't believe so. I don't believe so. But far be it from us to just continue journeying on our own terms rather than yielding to God's influence and coming under a unique sense of his leadership where what matters to him begins to matter to us. And you can't survey the things that we've surveyed without understanding God cares about how we do life together. And it's why I believe so strongly in our leaders. It's why it's a joy for us to do what we do. Because I believe that we have a people that are after a relational influence in the lives of others that will shepherd them towards God himself and his purposes for their life. That this is our desire as a team of leaders, to shepherd people towards God himself and not just towards our own gifting or profile, not just to create a dependency where people feel like they need my voice and my face, but to actually be free from that and break that and to live in a way where you're leading people straight to Jesus and they don't have to come through you first, which is what other structures are dependent upon, where we have a certain freedom to actually shepherd people and to find them deeply anchored in God and aligning to his purposes. I, with all of my heart, believe that this is what our leaders are after. And it's a joy for us to be able to lay our lives down and to labor this way. But if you don't realize that that's what we're after, then you might be um, expecting something different from us. <laughs> um, but what we are most interested in is leading people to the Lord and seeing them anchored in a life of deep intimacy in God where that anchoring is yielding to God's influence in every possible way, in every space and conversation of your life.
And so it absolutely matters then how our life is set up. Because how our life is set up reveals whether or not we're yielding to God's influence. I don't like the way that sounds any more than you do. And if you feel tricked that this is how we got here, (laughs) how our life is set up reveals whether or not we're yielding to his influence. And what I mean by that is it's not a one for all and all for one, meaning it's not a copy and paste game. It's not just smoke and mirrors and shadows. It's better than that. It's a real value system that must be embodied by the power of the Spirit. It's a value system that must be embodied by the power of the Spirit. It's a way of life that reveals our lives uniquely, individually, coming under the harness of God's leadership. It's our lives individually, uniquely revealing that we are committed to being influenced by him and what matters to him matters to me. Well, that just can't come off your lips. We have to look at your life. Because it's not just the adoption of a new language. It's not just trendy apostolic language where we just learn how to say what so-and-so is saying and therefore we succeed in the goal. And it's not just some dry, rigid, obligatory way of life where we're checking boxes. Oh, well, I got to make sure I do one of these a week and one of those a week and one of the. That's all externals. It's the internal life of God aligning us with God himself and then consistently bringing us to the place where we are embodying the things that matter most to God. And we have to evaluate our life at some point to see if what God says matters to him is actually mattering to me, meaning it is being demonstrated in the life I'm living. And that is much more difficult to do than just trying to copy and paste. But we're all journeying. We're all journeying. And I would encourage you Don't look at someone who is farther down the road from you and allow discouragement to settle in based off of where you are in your unique moment of journeying. You might look at someone else's life and how they live the values and consider to yourself, that is absolutely insane and I'm not ready for that. Well, no one said that you had to be ready to live in a sense of conditioning that you haven't actually been conditioned for. I was in the fitness industry for a while, as most um, know, there are all kinds of other people who are way more fit than I am in the room um, who do that as well. As a trainer, you would never bring someone in who's never worked out in their life and put them on a 500-pound back squat or a 400-pound bench press. You would condition them. You would have to consider a particular treatment over a long period of time in order to ready them to live in a measure of experience where they were conditioned enough to handle the weight and the pressure that others seem to be undergoing or experiencing in other ways. So you couldn't possibly look at someone who has been conditioning their life 
by a value system and think to yourself, because I can't do it the way that they're doing it, it must mean that I'm not supposed to do it. No one does that in any other area of life. You don't do that in a corporate experience. You don't walk in and say, because I'm not ready for some executive level position, it must mean that I'm not supposed to work here. No, you realize I need training. I need to actually have experience. I need to spend a massive amount of time actually working in a day-to-day way in order to develop the credentials or to produce the resume that's going to give me access to particular places. But for some reason, when we look at life in God, we cast off what we consider to be wisdom in every other area of life. And we think, well, I don't need anybody. I could do this on my own. I could set my life up the best way that I want. I don't need anybody to train me. I don't need anybody to help condition me. I don't need anybody to kind of show me the ropes. I don't need anybody to help me out in the field day by day to develop an experience or the reality to build the credentials of experience. I don't need that. Well, we need it in every other area of life and acknowledge that, that that's wisdom. But in spirit life, we tend to think, I don't want that and can do this by my own desires. And you are absolutely wrong. I mean, that's just the nice way to put it. We're wrong, right? But praise God for people who can relationally influence us towards God himself and the things that he's after, who can help to reveal and then to participate in our lives getting anchored in a way of life that is going to be a construct or a vehicle, a wineskin of sorts, to help God get the things that he's already determined he wants. And what does God want? He wants you to be conformed to the image of his son. And he's willing to work in all things in order to get that because he's already determined that that's good. And God is working all things together for good. Right? At the end of the age, you're not just going to bring him something you've done you're going to bring him something you've become. And he is willing to use wins and losses in order to make that happen. He's willing to use triumphs and tragedies in order to see that happen. He's willing to use the ebbs and flows of life. We tend to, based off of the world system, only pride ourselves in our wins and all of the things that we think we're advancing in. But God will use backs, he will use advances. God will use two steps forward, he'll use two steps back. He'll use time periods where you feel like you're buried, where you're being mocked, where you're being criticized, where the world is telling you you're failing. He'll use seasons where you're thriving, where there's abundance, where you seem to be succeeding based off of your own you've created. He'll use it all in order to get what it is that is most important to him. Because what's most him is a people that look like his son because this is what he's promised him a Jesus people and we have to connect the dots that our way of life and way of life together is practically making an investment in what God has said is the inheritance that Jesus deserves think about that what you do day by day is actually helping is actually aiding Jesus getting 
what his father has promised him, which is a people that look like him. And it's all of the unique opportunities that we have, yes, to live the Bible, right? Like when life happens to us, we want to be inspired and informed by the word so that we can help navigate what we do as life is happening to us. But then there's all of the relational considerations and intersections where our life together is providing us opportunities to yield to God's influence and to actually be conformed to be more like Jesus. And so if we are resisting a way of life, resisting a way of life, which we've already concluded God is absolutely interested in. If we are resisting a way of life, then we are resisting a measure of our own individual being conformed to his image. Because it's just not possible for you to get on your own. It's why we need one another, and it's why we need a way of life together that is going to provide us with all of the opportunities for God to work in us and in the midst of us to make ready the people that he promised his son. And we have to ask ourselves, is my life set up for me to get what I want or for God to get what he wants? Because it matters to God. And it matters to Jesus because he's praying for the people that he's been promised. And so we'll close with that consideration. And next week being our final time together this way, we will consider Acts 2 and 13 and the different ingredients, if you would, of a life together. Because God's prescription produces the product that he has promised his son. And so we must be given over to the prescription, to God's wisdom, to his blueprint for a way of life where what matters to him is actually being embodied in our life and way of life so that what he wants, he's getting out of us and then working in the midst of us as we are committed to a way of life together. So we will consider those things next week. But I'm going to ask everybody to stand and I'm going to just take a moment and pray for us.